0: Dr. Brian Penny shouldn't be alive today. His drug addiction was so bad that he was deemed too much of a risk for detox. Determined to confront his demons, he went cold turkey at home. Discovered in a pool of blood, it didn't exactly go to plan, but that's where his life truly began. In his incredibly honest and inspirational book, Bonus Time, Brian shares the story of how he turned a seemingly hopeless existence into a rich and rewarding life, showing that change is always possible, no matter how stuck we feel. Brian, absolutely honored, delighted, privileged to have you here join me in the studio and You're someone that I've come across a few years ago. I actually reached out to you several years ago where you were having an interview with Jen Zamparelli on 2FM, which you're now a a regular on. And I heard your story and I thought, this guy, I need to speak to him. Incredible story. That doesn't even cut it. Reached out to you and you're in the middle of a thesis or a PhD at the time. PhD thesis, yeah. And it didn't, didn't happen. So I'm actually very grateful that it didn't at that point because that would have been a Zoom conversation and it wouldn't have been this face-to-face interaction and we wouldn't have really met. So it's, it's brilliant to, to meet you because I, I know your story. I know that what the listeners are going to hear today is absolutely going to blow their mind. It's going to inspire them. So stand by everyone. So you've been on quite a journey. You were addicted to heroin for 15 years. You've now become a doctor and I've had my experiences with addiction as well in the past. Porn addiction, alcohol was a big problem for me as well in my early twenties and what I've come to understand through my own recovery process was that the porn was not the problem, the alcohol was not the problem, the work addiction which later became the addiction was not the problem there was an underlying pain beneath this addiction. And it was only then when I found the source of the pain that influenced my behaviors and actions and my life from that point forward that I began to heal from the pain and therefore move on from the addiction. So for yourself, the heroin was not the problem. What was the underlying pain beneath that addiction for yourself? Yeah, it's <coughs> excuse me, it's it's really
1: interesting, Gavin, as well. And when people hear me saying that, that heroin was not the problem, it was just a symptom of an underlying problem. It's it's a little bit strange when people hear that. And for me, it was panic attacks and anxiety, which came from a traumatic experience. So I, I probably had several traumas in my life, I suppose. I, I came into the world with a, a condition known as intestinal malrotation in simpler terms that meant that my guts were twisted and I couldn't get, uh, I got very little nutrition into my body. And it turned out that I had to have an operation at three weeks of age. And what was interesting about the operation was, and for any infant having an operation pre-1985, is that you would have having an operation without a general anesthetic. That was the practice pre-1985. The medical practice believed that infants wouldn't really remember it anyway. And that the anesthetic would have been too dangerous. So the cost-benefit analysis, they says nah, they'd be okay, they would be fine, they won't remember it. But what we know today is that the body keeps the score. It's a great book by Bessel van der Kok. And that trauma, even though you don't cognitively remember it, that left a biological imprint on my brain and body, literally turning me into a finely tuned anxiety machine, scanning the world for threats and danger. It's an evolutionary response that that the body is working to look for other potential threats like that. And I think that set me up. That set the the foundations for me to be agitated, anxious, and I was susceptible to worry, panic, bodily agitation. I always had this tightness around my chest. I had a phobic fear of my heartbeat, breath and pulse. And I was just never happy in my own skin. And that's for me, that's what drove my entire addiction. Like once I found drugs and drugs came into my life, all of a sudden here was the anesthetic that I needed all of my life. The anesthetic that I never got. I thought I found a solution and I thought I was smart enough not to get addicted and I could use drugs a little bit differently than other people. The self-deception was kicking in pretty early. And that's what it was, and that was the driver. That was the underlying root cause of all of my problems. I was always looking to escape and avoid that emotional and psychological pain, and drugs were the were the were the weapon I chose to fight that battle.
0: How did your environment influence you from those early
1: ages? The environment was a massive influence because i i i was sort of good. I was good at football. And I was good at good in school as well. So I, I I had good belief that I would go and do something with my life. Even though I struggled with anxiety, um my mom and dad um like they had their alcohol struggles as well. There was alcoholism within the family, but they were loving and they were great providers as well. So I never worried about basic needs. My basic needs were always met. And I had great self belief that I would go on and do things. But the area where I grew up, great community spirit in the area, but it was very violent, full of drugs, robbed cars every night. It was probably the most dangerous place, not dangerous, the most destructive place in Dublin growing up in the 90s. It was a place called uh, Drumheats in Ladieswell, but it was a great place. But they just took a lot of families with a lot of trauma from diff- other challenging areas of Dublin like Ballymone and Darrendale. I think 80% of the families came from Ballymone. They'd them into this little estate with 200 houses and havoc ensued. So there was drugs everywhere and it was just like uh, a rite of passage that you will take drugs and probably even sell drugs. Like everyone sort of just sold drugs. That's just the way it was. So that played a role in terms of normalising drugs and normalising those certain challenging behaviours and it definitely played a massive role.
0: It also normalised the reason to fear for you as well because as you mentioned you you go from that experience of the operation and being in extreme pain which is infiltrated by another human being and then it embeds this fear in you that people can't be trusted and you could potentially experience this pain again but you're in an environment that is almost consumed with fear and violence and these difficulties so when you step outside your door you don't feel safe
1: Uh, Interesting you say that what comes to mind when you say that one of my very first memories I moved to it was Ladies Well at the time it was called It Is Drum Heat and when I moved there one of my earliest memories was I think I was seven at the time and there was a lot of uh, challenges with some of the older lads in the estate, I think they were they were younger, but I think they were probably only 14, 15, but they were very old to me back then when I was a seven year old. But there was uh, some of the older men in the estate who were trying to sort of bring a bit of uh, safety to the area. So there was a vigilante movement. So it was this vigilante movement back in the, this would have been the 80s actually, the, uh, the late 80s in Dublin. And I remember my dad going out and the word being a vigilante and I'd hear some of the stories be talking to me, mom. So it was just like, that was, it was like a war zone that was out there as a seven-year-old. So that was my earlier experience. I was sort of getting conditioned to view my external world in that, in that, in that way. So lots of fear, really building on that earlier, earlier fear that I had.
0: When was your first exposure to
1: drugs then? My first exposure to drugs. I was, um, I was, I was quite good at football, and uh, and there was talk that I could have gone doing trials. In retrospect, I don't think I was good. I wasn't good enough to make it, but I was pretty good in the area. Like, I was a very good player for the area. And I would never use drugs. I would never smoke cigarettes. My friends started smoking cigarettes when we were 14. And I was like, he is mad. Like, I just thought they were bonkers. But I think the curiosity was starting to kick in then around um, just being curious about drugs and different things then as well. And I remember I was injured for a couple of months and we were on the the roof of the football dressing rooms. You know, there'd be green boxes that they have for dressing rooms. And we were on the roof sitting, messing around, and the lads were smoking cigarettes. And one of them lit up um, like a roll-up cigarette, big dirty Samson tobacco cigarette. And I would no interest in that. But one of them said, the head buzz you get off that. And I remember that piqued me interest, They you get a head buzz off that. And I had my first puff of a cigarette on that dressing room, and it was just a puff of a smoke, tobacco. But that little head buzz appealed to me greatly. And within that summer, that was the summer. And within that summer, I'd start smoking cigarettes. i start smoking hash very, very quickly. We start sniffing petrol down the fields. We start doing, taking tablets. Um, sort of, they were called duck eggs at the time. They're like benzodiazepines. And we just really, it escalated really, really quick. So that was at 14 years of age. Start drinking alcohol as well. And then when I was 16, so I was cut, cut a bit of time went by. But when I was 16, I was getting really interested in drugs and we were big fans of Jim Morrison. We used to go to my friend Rory's house, great guy, still struggling with addiction unfortunately, but we used to go to his house every Friday and knock the lights off. His mom and dad would be gone to the pub and we'd sit around smoking like ridiculous smells of cannabis resin at the time, the old hash. And we'd play the doors, the candles going, the whole room be full of smoke. And Jim was our God. Jim Morrison was our God. And Jim said, try everything once, experience everything once. So he says, okay, Jim, we tried heroin once, <laughs> and obviously it didn't turn out that way. And interestingly enough, I always think back of that. There was seven of us that done heroin once for the first time, and only two of us got addicted. And it was me and Rory, the two that struggled most with our emotions. So, I think it's important to recognise that 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 heroin it's not instantly addictive to everybody. Again, it taps into that. It's a symptom of an underlying problem. Both me and Rory had bigger underlying problems. So heroin took our pain away. And that's what made it addictive. Not rewarding you as in it feels incredible. It does. But it takes away that pain. And the incredible feeling also it doesn't last very long. And it quickly brings you to hell. But it was, um, that, was the, that was the escalation really quickly of us sort of getting into harder drugs from that first time down drugs.
0: And how did that have a knock on effect with the rest of your life then? It took a long
1: time, Gavin. I think it's important with, with my story. Like I was chronically addicted for 15 years. So I started taking heroin at, at 16, 17 years of age. <clears throat> and I didn't believe, I still thought I was going to go out and be someone in the world. And it took a long couple of years for heroin really to take hold. I was addicted from the first moment. But we always say, right, we'll just do it on a, every now and then, once a month. Then after a couple of months, it crept into once a week. So it was me and Rory then, we'd do it on a Monday and a Tuesday night, but we'd still go out with the lads and drink on a Saturday, Sunday, because that's what we all did in the group. But we had this little secret addiction that was there. And I of living two lives, and we genuinely believed we had the secret that you didn't have to be this stereotypical transpot an addict. You could actually use heroin in a safe way. That's what we genuinely believed. But it was reeling us in slowly, 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 slowly. And then by the time I was 20, I had a full-blown panic attack that raised my baseline anxiety to a whole new level. I used to blame Red Bull for the panic attack, but I was actually taking like ridiculous amounts of cocaine at the time. So in retrospect, I think it was the cocaine that, was, that really um, heightened that. And that sort of set me off on a journey where I didn't really, I wasn't really into uppers anymore. It was all about downers and I was always trying to numb that anxiety because it was relentless, it really was. So I started using heroin daily um, from the age of 20. So I was chronically addicted for those 15 years. So um, yeah, that's where the journey was. I actually forget, what was the the initial question? I was going somewhere with that. How
0: did it affect your your life on the outside?
1: Yeah, so it was nearly two lives I was leading at that stage because I came from, I'll say an inverted commas, a respectable family, a family that didn't really do drugs. I wasn't expected that I would be a heroin addict. So I kind of had this secret life of a heroin addict crippled with anxiety versus someone else that had a job and was going places. And all through my 30s, like through heroin addiction, I went to my job. When I done my interview for my job at 18 years of age, I went with Tim Foyle and a tour of heroin in my John Player Blue Box. When I left that job at 35 years of age, I was still chronically addicted. Like That's when I went to the depths. But during that time, I was sort of living two lives all of the time. But it was only when I hit my my late 20s, early 30s that I really started taking its toll. Like I sort of successfully, if you could say successfully, I successfully used heroin and I was a functional addict for all of my 20s. Successful in terms of external success, but inwardly I was broken and I was so tormented and I was in turmoil and I was so misaligned with my core values of who I wanted to be versus who I was. My feelings were driving everything. So it it was this completely fake life. It was a facade. Whereas a sort of those two worlds began to collide uh, in my latter 20s, early 30s. And it was very obvious. Everyone sort of knew I was an addict at this stage and it just all collapsed. But it still took another couple of years, like until I hit 35, that I lost everything and it completely annihilated me and forced me to look at life um, from another perspective. Like kicked me very hard enough that I'd have to do something else. What did you lose? Well, I lost my mind. I definitely lost, I went into a form of psychosis at one stage where I just thought, I just had some crazy thoughts. Like at one stage, it's kind of funny looking back at it now but I remember thinking that I was the only real person in the world that when I wasn't looking at people where they really moving like it was like this insidious thing which is a very egotistical self-centered thing like I literally believed that I was the center of the universe and everyone was doing these things on the side to sort of set me up in a way which is really weird and I never really believed it. I used to laugh at it but I kept on coming back coming back coming back I lost my health massively lost my health. I was on death's door. Like I literally, if I didn't get clean at 35, I don't think I'd survive in a year. I was taking so much drugs. I was, I was a very successful addict um, in terms of getting money and getting drugs. And that was killing me massively. And I was really, like there's pictures of me before and after and I was on, I was on death's door. But the most important thing that I lost, I lost my job in the end, but the most important thing I lost was all the relationships. And I think one of the the core elements of addiction is is that disconnection with other people. But I think it starts with a disconnection with yourself. So I needed an anesthetic to numb anxiety, but it's not selectively. It didn't just selectively numb anxiety and numb every feeling I had. So I disconnected from myself. And when I disconnected from myself, I disconnected with the relationships around me. And I have an incredible family, like my family are heroes for me personally, they are Me, me, Even throughout my addiction, they tried to help me so much, like um, all of my family, every one of them. And when I found uh, recovery and I was down in Wexford at a treatment center, the whole gang of them would go down to Wexford every single week to help me out and support me, even though the pain that I caused them. But in the latter stages, I lost them. I'd already lost them because I'd lost that connection, which I only realize is so strong and powerful because of the connection we have today. I've rebuilt those bridges. But I lost everything, and if I died or if everything went in a different direction, then I would have lost these beautiful connections that I have with my family that 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 I just ruined. So that for me is it's a scary talk, but it's beautiful because we've regained. Like we're 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 a very happy family today. Like everyone's doing well, and the, we are. There was a lot of addiction issues within the family. And it was only when I found recovery that the, the light shone on everyone else. Oh, wow. Addiction isn't just about heroin. It's alcohol. It's other marijuana. It's other things, you know, like the different, different poison, same issues can be driving the addiction as well. So it was quite interesting.
0: Mm. The change almost happens through osmosis. They see yeah. the transformation in you and they're inspired to yeah. go through a similar process themselves.
1: Yeah, there's a line I heard one time that uh, addiction isn't a spectator sport. Eventually the whole family get to play. But I think recovery's the same. The whole family get to play in that too.
0: Mm-hmm. Was there something you lost in that process or along that part of the journey that you haven't regained? Um,
1: I don't know. I don't know if if there is, I think that I have regained so much more, not regained I have gained so much more as a result of the pain that I went through and I fundamentally believe that a our, our kryptonite be, can become a superpower. I like to think of a level of awareness now that I never would have reached if I didn't go into the depths of addiction. I have a resilience now that I certainly never would have had if I didn't go into the depths of addiction. And for me, resilience isn't being dogged and determined. It's about using challenges as the fuel to learn and grow. So I've gained so much. And the only thing I would change about my life, I wouldn't even change my addiction. I would change the harms I caused my loved ones. But I wouldn't change um, what I went through because it's just given me so much. What I would say, there could be a level of intimacy that I could have developed if I never went into addiction with my family. Like we have incredible connections now, but there's something within my family as well. We're not huggers. We don't talk about how much we love each other. I can tell, I can say I love them, but I don't say it to their face, which is quite interesting. So it's a, a, a challenge for me and something I aim to do. Um, it's 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 something I want to do is just to sit down with them individually and have that intimate conversation and let them know. But when I talk about that, being vulnerable like that, like I can tell my partner and Natalie, I could tell her how I feel all of the time. But there's something about that part of my life and us as a family, we don't do that. That's not the game we play. We show our love through other ways. Like there's an incredible amount of love, but we just don't speak about it in that way. So maybe that's something that I could have, that I could have had if I never went into addiction. But I don't know. I just don't think we're a family that do that. It's interesting.
0: What's the barrier there, do you feel? What is the barrier? I... I
1: don't know what the barrier is. The barrier is fear. The barrier is fear, which it's it, it, it's 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 an obscure fear because it actually doesn't really exist. I suppose like for me, intellectually and um, emotionally, I know vulnerability is strength. Like think of a soldier jumping on a bomb to save other people. Like he's being vulnerable, physically vulnerable, but that's courage and strength. Could be stupidity as well. Depends on the situation. But vulnerability for me is strength. And to show vulnerability in that moment... Um is the strength that I would need to show, but it's just a fear of being open so it's it's quite interesting it's um it's quite an interesting thing but I, t- I think it's just fear, but it's an unfounded fear, which is quite interesting so I, i'm gonna I'm gonna break down those barriers soon it's it's in me it's in me on the agenda <laughs> the next
0: mission yes yeah the next mission list you yeah. you've conquered so many barriers in your life so far and you came up against uh, quite a significant barrier after 15 years of addiction and you reached the the tipping point, you ended up at the bottom of the pit. What did that look like?
1: It's, it's, a, it's a really interesting one because the, the big pain for me was the relentless slog of addiction, especially in the latter years. It was Groundhog Day. I couldn't sleep. The drugs weren't working anymore. They were just making me worse. I would drive my car and by the time I would get anywhere, my hands would be sweating because I'd be clasping the steering wheel so tight and started creating this weird shell around my chest to protect, protect my chest. That was the slog. That was the pain. And when I lost my job and I lost all abilities, I was in 50,000 euro of debt to drug dealers, moneylenders and banks. I lost my ability to buy drugs and get drugs. And even drug dealers, I used to sell drugs to fund my habit, but even drug dealers wouldn't give me drugs to sell because I was so unreliable in every form of life. And when that happened, um, I went to the clinic where I was a registered addict and I said, look, it's all falling apart. I need to try to get clean. I didn't think I could live in a world. My fundamental narrative of life was I can't cope with anxiety. I need drugs. And I knew... I. I couldn't live that life anymore, it had all fallen apart. So I had to do something else. I felt like a rat trapped in a corner. So I says, look, I have to try to get clean. Now, my goal was to get clean and come back and do drugs in a more successful way because I didn't think I could live without drugs. But I was told I needed to do a benzo detox before I could do a heroin detox. And then I was told I'd have to wait four months before a bed would be available for a benzo detox. I didn't think I'd be alive in four months. Never mind anything else. So against medical advice, i done a benzo detox at home on me own. And I wouldn't advise anyone to do that because it can kill you. I got very lucky. But two nights into that detox was not only the most painful night in my life, it was also the most important night in my life. And what occurred was that I had what's called a grand malconvulsive seizure which occurs when every neuron in your brain fires at the same time. So it was like this cascading effect of neurons firing across my brain. I was pulsing, convulsing and twisting on the floor in a full-blown seizure. My younger brother, who was minding me, lovely sensitive soul, James, great, great human being, he was in addiction at the time himself, but he was um he's since found recovery too. But he was minding me. And as I was seizing on the floor, he didn't know what was going on. He was trying to hold me, he was like screaming, what's going on, trying to get through to me, but I was gone. And in the last convulsion, I'd actually drove my teeth, splitting my tongue down the center, slumped on the floor, blood poured now my mouth. My brother James thought I was dead, rang me dad. Brian's dead, Brian's dead, I think he's dead. And my family flew up to the house. They all came up to the house. My mum rang my sister. So my sister came to the house thinking she was going to be walking into me dead on the floor. Ambulance outside, blue lights flashing. So that was the final pain that I brought to the family. But yeah, I got brought to hospital. And when I was brought to hospital, I woke up later that night on a trolley. And when I woke up, um, I remember just being broken. I was so broken physically, mentally, and emotionally broken. Felt like I had a bag of needles in my mouth from splitting my tongue. And I just had no strength. Like I, I never wanted to use drugs more in that moment than I did right there because I was in so much pain physically and psychologically and emotionally. But I hadn't got the strength. I was so weak and broken. I just hadn't got the strength. And I remember looking at the wall at one stage and seeing this fire extinguisher hanging on the wall red fire extinguisher and I was looking at it in this tunnel vision for a few minutes and I had this weird realization that I didn't really know what it was it was like this feeling in the pit in my stomach saying something's really wrong here I I should know it I should know what that is and I began to panic and looking around the room saying, what's going on here? I can't, I don't understand me environment. And I tried to label things in the room, like beds and walls. And it was like I knew I should have known what these things were, but I couldn't bring it cognitively, cognitively to my mind. And I remember thinking in that moment, oh my God, that's brain damage. You've destroyed your brain. Game over, no coming back from this. And I remember just being, waiting for anxiety and panic to just consume me like it always did. But I remember just saying to myself, I can't fight this anymore. I can't do this anymore. I'm done. You win. I am done. And I lay back down on the trolley, just sort of accepting my fate of panic and fear over the fact I was brain damaged. But instead of that, I felt a sense of peace. And what I've retrospectively realized was that that was the first moment in my life that I ever stopped fighting anxiety or trying to fight anxiety I stopped trying to fight with my own mind, resist reality. I put up the white flag. I surrendered. And I truly believe that that was the moment as painful as it was. And it's why I believe that our pains and our challenges can be our superpowers. Because I believe that was the moment that completely changed my life. It gave me that moment to surrender, allowed me to look at the world in a different way. And even though I had other seizures after that, I other hospital visits three weeks later, I found myself on a detox facility to get off fifteen-year heroin addiction. Something had massively shifted, and it was like I was looking at the world through a different lens. And for me, that 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 pain became became the light. Acceptance was it. Yeah, acceptance was a massive part. Yeah, acceptance was probably the biggest part of it. Accept, and I love that line, like I I, I wouldn't be um, a big fellowship kind of person in recovery. It works for some people. It just wasn't really for me. But there's a prayer. It's not, it doesn't belong to fellowship, but there's a prayer called a serenity prayer and it's accept the things you cannot change. Grant me the serenity, accept the things I cannot change. Oh, I forget the bloody prayer now. It's a great prayer. But the wisdom to know the difference. So what you can change, accept what you can't change, change what you can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So in that moment, acceptance was the key. I was broken. I was beaten. Put down the fight and learned to... I I needed to fall down before I got back up again. So acceptance was definitely the key.
0: You couldn't cope on your own at that point. So what were some of the... Or who were some of the people that lifted you back up again so you could take that step forward? Yeah,
1: my family were absolutely instrumental. So I could um, I I couldn't even I, I had to make phone calls at that time while I while I was out of the hospital after having the seizures, and I remember having to make an important phone call, and I couldn't even hold the phone in my hand. The strength in my arms had gone. And my dad came up, my brother, my two brothers were minding me through uh, the withdrawals, finishing the withdrawals. My dad was up, all of my family just kept on coming up. My mom couldn't come up, she was just so broken. Like even through them times when she came to the treatment facilities to talk, every time she opened her mouth she would just start crying, she couldn't actually speak. So she nearly had to look after herself in that moment. But she was there for me as well all of the time. So my whole family were there, they were making all the calls for me to get into a detox facility. Then when I got into the detox facility, I had the care workers there. I had the support of other people that had gone through addiction. And when I landed in the detox, that shift in perspective that I had, I had this incredible hope, this incredible energy come into me. I don't know where it came from. And this intense curiosity and willingness to find out why I was so broken emotionally and mentally. Now I had this sort of energy and hope for the future, something had shifted and I felt it. And when I got to the detox facility, there was a psychologist there and I was sort of explaining what had happened to me. And I was, they gave me books. I started meditating. So I had all of these professional supports as well. And then when I got to a treatment for center after detox, I continued to have those professional supports. Funnily enough, when I got out, of treatment after that I was expecting there to be a parade Brian's out of treatment he's back all my friends be a parade down the street everyone's excited about Brian getting better again but um it turned out I had no friends there was no parade I had isolated myself so much I completely lost touch with reality that my f- family were the only people that were there me best name, mate Gar was there as well and De- uh, two other friends as well Deco and Rory And um, but they had their own challenges as well but um that's when I leaned into fellowship for a while as well. I didn't need fellowship so much for staying sober and clean. It was more for the support systems, which is part of that process as well. But I very quickly went into academic circles because I wanted to learn about the human mind and the human brain, And I started forming friendships and mentorships in there as well. So again, it was all about connection. But having my family as the foundational support structure for me there, I've only realized in the last year or two, was fundamentally the most important thing I had because I knew that no matter what else I'd done, they were there for me. And those foundations were strong, are still strong.
0: What were some of the setbacks that you experienced after the the seizure, after the acceptance? I'm pretty sure it wasn't a linear process from that point forward. And how did you manage it?
1: Yeah, there was the 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 heroin withdrawal was was rough. It was absolutely rough. The methadone withdrawal would have been at that stage, and the 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 physicality of that like it's hard to describe what it's like. It's like a flu multiplied by ten, nearly. But it's like this fever in your bones, nearly. But the physical aspect is hard, but it's the emotional aspect as well. Like, I remember being afraid to open my wardrobe for a couple of days while I was in detox. Like, it was aff- I was afraid—I don't know what I was afraid of. I was just afraid of the wardrobe. It didn't make any rational sense. And I remember there was one night, like, you're very, you don't really sleep when you're going through a heroin detox. And I'd say there was a course of five, six, seven, eight nights, hard to remember. But it felt like I didn't sleep at all. I think I had micro-sleeps. I think there was elements of sleep somewhere, but i just sit up in the kitchen, of that little house on the outskirts of Dublin I'd sit up in the kitchen and it was funny they used to lock the knives away every night and I never wondered why, I always wondered why they done that but I remember being in the kitchen that night I Says, I oh, that's why they locked the knives up just in case you get any funny thoughts but I remember the tick tock of the clock felt like it was going in slow motion like so slow and it was like this eternity that was never going to end and I remember at one stage it was the only time since my seizure that I had a talk because something about the seizure made me realise that I can never do drugs again but when I was in that room the only thing that kept me from climbing out the window and going walking back to Dublin to get drugs was my fear of the dark that was bizarre because I was in that detox so that was a real struggle I had within the detox but once I got through that my intense thirst for life and for curiosity to learn about the human mind it just had to carry me on this journey i'm so grateful for that because it just started to brought me along for a ride and when i landed in a, i had done a degree in psychology straight away in Minute university and i i believe i was given i don't know what it was a perspective shift an awakening a gift dumb look but i was just so present that's the only way i can describe it i remember just looking at the trees it was a very spiritual experience and i'd look at the trees And everything just felt so alive. The world just felt like it was glowing and it was so alive. And that was really powerful while I was in the detox, but it it continued to resonate with me for a long time. But when I went to college, I began to get obsessed about college. And in second year, I was doing really well. My newfound obsession with learning was helping me to do really, really well. And I got ideas of a PhD and I was chasing top class honors and top of the class and all of these awards to help me to get the PhD, the scholarship. And on the back of that, I was working too hard and I was focusing too much on that. So two years into my recovery, I remember walking through Minute College and there's, wherever ever in the University of Minute. Fabulous, fabulous university, especially the South Campus. And they have these huge sequoia trees in the campus. They are ginormous. They are beautiful. They must be around probably thousands of years. I don't know. But I remember being blown away by these trees when I first arrived at the campus. And one of the days, two years in, I was walking there and I was walking through the campus and I was feeling a bit anxious and stressed. And I remember having this realization, I was looking at the trees, thinking, I don't see them like I used to. I used to see them and they felt so alive. And I was like everything came to me really quickly. Wow, I was thrown away this gift I was given, whatever the hell it was. And I suddenly re- realized there was a time before that, while I was I was doing delivery driving to get me drill uh, deliver and field to get me through college. And I had a little mini relapse where I had a bit of a cold and I started taking in. Now that might not sound like a big deal to many people, but for a former heroin addict who takes in for the cold and I didn't take two, I took three the first time and I started taking three fours and fives at one stage as well to get that little bit of a buzz. Now I didn't continue it, but I did it and left it the parked there for a while. And all of these feelings as I was looking at these trees in Minutia University just start rushing back to me saying, oh my God, what have I been doing? It was like another wake-up call. And even though I was doing phenomenally well in Minute, I was like, I need to quit this. I have to get away from college. I can't do this. My fundamental well-being isn't more important than anything else. And I start reaching out to different people. And there was a fella, a book I read by a guy. God, I forget his name, actually. How do I forget his name? He's, um, he, he, he was um, in the Eckhart Tolle book club. So Eckhart Tolle was a supporter of his work. And he was an educator. He was a professor who explored spiritual experiences. And for some reason, I had this urge just to reach out to him. So I sent an email to his college in uh, in Nottingham, I think is where he worked. And he sent me an email back. And the email said, look, you're in a good place being in an academic environment. Because I was, I was thinking of going to Tibet to meditate for the rest of my life, like nearly afraid to lose that feeling or going chasing like an addict, chasing that feeling again that I'd lost. So I, uh, he reached out back to me and he get me an email and he says, look, you're in a great place, but you need to focus, number one, on your mental and emotional well-being. That's got to be your priority. And from that point, I stayed in college, but I made my mental and emotional well-being my number one. I began developing a program for my own life. I call it a program for life, which has since become my business model. That's my business model. I delivered to schools and corporates leadership teams in the world now, I've been over to Canada recently to deliver them as well. But it stemmed from that to look after my emotional health first, And I didn't study as much. I focused on my health first, and my results got even better as a result, which was really, really interesting. So again, the challenge became the superpower for me. That's real resilience. It's using the challenge as the fuel for growth. So I've, I nearly have a have a, have a way of looking at the world now. Is when challenges come into me, life, I lean in and say, "Right, where's the learning in that?" So it's that. That was definitely the biggest challenge I had, and it could have been a tipping point for me to go in a different direction. But thankfully, um, again, I had the supports of other people at the time.
0: Mm-hmm. You had the incredible challenge as well of. Going back and finding the the source of your anxiety and your pain. How did that come about? And was it an instant memory or did this sort of process evolve over time as you were recovering and you're going through this potentially spiritual practice and your routines and mental health program and all the rest of it? At what point did you realize, oh, fuck. That's what it
1: was. That's what it was, yeah. That's a really interesting question because that's another challenge I had that I forgot about. So I was in a big meditative vibe at that time. I was all about stillness. I was all around about nature, meditation, and just being connected and being present. That's really the key of where of where it's at. And I had this realization that when I had this sort of sense of the world was so alive, the first time I experienced that, I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what was going on. And I'd done a meditation soon after that in the treatment center. And the meditator was talking about thoughts will come in and thoughts will come out. And I realized that my mind was really quiet. So that started to set me off on a journey to explore, is the nature of a quiet mind and is it linked to emotions and if I was compulsively thinking and telling myself that I'm a piece of crap, that I'm not man enough, I'll never be able to change, was that driving my uh, challenging emotions? So I explored, a lot of my research explored self-talk and how we speak to ourselves. Because if you tell yourself you're a piece of crap every single day, you're going to feel like a piece of crap. That's a lay version of what the research shows. Language is a vehicle for emotion. My favorite quote is is by a Persian poet called Hafiz. The words you speak become the house you live in. And I was still tormented a little bit, not tormented, I still struggled with the scar on my belly, that initial scar that I had as a three-week-old baby. And even when I talk about it here today, I can sit with it, I can rub that scar on my belly, I can touch it, I can go there. But a couple of years into recovery, I still felt very queasy over that. And my heartbeat, I still had a a, a problem starting to access my heartbeat and thinking and focusing on my heartbeat. And I could be doing a meditation, feeling very calm, very zen. And if the meditator, the guided meditation says, now go to your heart center, that word would make me feel anxious. So that was really interesting. I was like, how can words hold so much power? And... It was a block that I hadn't gotten through yet. This sort of trauma that I experienced, I believe it came as a baby. I will never really fundamentally know that, but from the research I've explored, and it was only when I was um, researching my book in 2019 that I was going deep into this. And that's when I found out about that infants had operations without a general anesthetic. And when I was interviewing a woman called, a psychologist called Alison Keane, she's a fabulous psychologist, I was talking to Alison about my earlier pain and um, me as a baby having this operation. And she's an incredible psychotherapist, really brilliant. And she noticed that I kept on calling infant me. I didn't call it a baby or an infant. I call it an organism. And she asked me, Brian, why do you keep on referring to your infant self as an organism? And it was like this, this powerful moment from her and me. We both got emotional. It was like, oh my God. It was like this release of energy. I was dehumanizing myself. So I was still creating that disconnection from my former self who had been treated non-humanly to a certain extent. So I dehumanized that baby as well because I didn't want to feel that pain. So that started me off on a journey of inner child work, of really exploring that trauma, Touching my focusing on my heart, be focusing on the scar on my belly, and for me to be able to sit here and put my hand on my heart today, it's not short of a miracle. It really is because of what I went through my entire my entire life. So that was a huge challenge, and getting over that was probably one of the biggest the biggest obstacles I ever faced. And it seems so easy, putting your hand on your heart, but that was one of the biggest obstacles I ever faced. And the, the journey is always ongoing, but that was really one of the the, the biggest moments that I the, the biggest hurdles that I had to get over.
0: How do you manage the triggers now that will inevitably arise when it comes to your past? Um, again,
1: as as I mentioned, um, I, I see challenges as fuel for growth. Like I, I have a, an incredible relationship with anxiety. I, I nearly enjoy anxiety. I don't f- enjoy feeling anxious. I enjoy my ability to laugh at it and swat it aside and say, you have no power over me anymore. Um, and I enjoy that. And the triggers for me are no longer triggers in terms of relapse. Like I do feel I'm pretty bulletproof for relapse because I've gotten to the root core of the problem. Now, if World War Three happens in Ireland and there's no electricity and there's no food and I'm trying to protect my family, I'm sure those triggers could arise. So I'm never completely bulletproof. Or I was speaking <clears throat> I was speaking to someone recently about being in prison. And it says, imagine I got locked up for some absurd reason out of the blue for five years. Well, maybe I say, well, maybe it's worth it. You like, see, you're never completely immune, you know, that way. But as a stand, I feel pretty much bulletproof to that, to those kinds of triggers, those mental health kind of triggers. But there's always the ongoing triggers, like with family and, and relationships and stuff like me dad. I always use me dad as an example of this lovely man. Um, But you you have a negative bias towards negativity, let's say, especially when it's political and stuff like that. So there's trigger points with him. So I've actually done a lot of work on myself to sort of be able to spend quality time with him without getting triggered. And again, he's been my greatest teacher with that as well. And then in my relationship, like Natalie, my partner now today, it's the ones we care about most and the challenges they have. We're we're actually, um, we're moving house. We were supposed to get our kids last week we didn't get our case, we're getting the next week, but all of our stuff was arriving in the house today, or yesterday, sorry, yesterday it was. And, I was fine. I don't do stress. What will be will be. I'm not going to argue with reality. That's a mantra of mine. But she was getting freaked out. And by her getting freaked out, that was stressing me out. So it's the challenges you have with other people. Those challenges will always be there. But I think the reality is today that I have a toolbox. Like it's not that I enjoy anxiety. As I said, I have a toolbox to reach into so I could go for a run. I could do breath work, I could speak to somebody else, I could journal on it. There's so many things that you can actually do in the moment that's going to serve you going forward rather than reacting emotionally in that moment to drive you in the opposite direction. So it's reaching into the toolbox will be the will be the will be the way.
0: What about your friend Rory who hasn't been so fortunate?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's a terrible shame. Rory's just such a great guy. He really is. Um, he's such a funny character as well. Um, like I've reached out multiple times to him and we've we've gotten together a few times. He, he jokingly calls me the preacher. Oh, he's the preacher. <laughs> I never was a preacher to him, so I don't know where he goes there. But I think I'm a little bit aversive to him in the sense that I sort of, in a good way, I am something he could be. But he can't get there. So it, seeing me is probably a little bit of a verse. I'm probably putting words in his mouth. I don't know whether that's true. But we've met up on several occasions and um, what do you call it? He's, he's just such, he was so clever, so smart. He had the world at his feet and he just had those emotional struggles. And I remember recently, it was about two, three years ago, I arranged to meet up. He always has different phones, so he's hard to get in contact with. But I arranged to meet up and I would previously, a big part of my journey has been reaching out to mentors to help me on the journey. And I'd reached out to a guy called Fergal Nocton. So Fergal was the CEO of Dimplex, The family company is worth 1.5 billion. An incredible company, incredibly wealthy, incredible guy, actually, Fergal is as well. And he introduced me to the Provost of Trinity. So one night, two or three years ago, I was in Trinity House, one Grafton Street in the Provost's house. and Beautiful home. Like It was an absolutely fabulous experience just talking to the president, which was the Provost and Fergal Nocton having a really like... uh, dining kind of an experience. Like it was a really profound experience like a, like a back, back in the ages in in, in, in royalty in, in, a, in a way. And then the following night I was meeting Rory. And Rory says, I'll meet you at the Blanchestown Centre. So we are going for a stroll around, for a walk around the Blanchestown Centre. And Rory's in the depths of addiction. He was a heroin addict for years, but he, he struggles now with alcohol as well because happens to a lot of people in addiction. They use methadone and heroin doesn't do the job anymore. So alcohol becomes a, a vice and he, he's okay about me telling the story I asked him, but we we went in, he says, I need to go into the centre for a minute. So he says I'm just going to run it to get smokes. do you want that? And I says no, I'm fine. So I was standing in Blanchestown Town Centre, in in the centre, he went into Dunn's, and I'm standing outside, and all of a sudden I'm seeing security guards running around, some of them are scoping me out, and they're looking at me, I'm like, what's going on? I'm still waiting for Rory, 15, 20 minutes, and then all of a sudden I see him down the end at the doors, and he's screaming up, Penny that was my nickname back then, Penny Earth, come on, come on. So I walked down, and said, what the hell is going on? He said, oh, I went in to rob a few, rob some drink, and I got caught and I got chased by security. So one night I'm in one number one number one Gravity Street. The next night I'm nearly getting arrested. <laughs> I could have been in a cell like for for getting arrested for, for robbing alcohol in the shops. But that was just Rory all over, but us all over. We were about uh, we were about partners in crime back in the day. And we just had to have a look like heroin is in, 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 in where we grew up was called tack at one stage so me and Rory used to have our own language so we'd go for a game of knick knack a knick knack paddy whack <laughs> we'd just say give a dog a bone and we'd have our own little language we'd have a look and we'd go do it so yeah it makes me really sad really really sad because I haven't got the solution people think I have the solution because of the journey especially if they don't know about addiction and I wish I had some kind of a way to get through to them but people just have to find their own journey. It's, um, it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's really, it's really sad. And there's so many people caught in the belly of that and you just can't get out.
0: Mm.
1: Have you been able to pull people out? I wouldn't, no, I don't think anyone can pull anyone out. I think that's the reality of it. And <clears throat> what I'll say, I, I kind of have, I, I, I have a framework for thinking about this. I'll give you an example of my brother James. So when James, um, when I broke free from addiction, I realized that my two brothers who I was living with were both deep in addiction. It wasn't heroin, it was coke, it was weed, it was alcohol. And um I tried to sort of get them to see a different way. And they couldn't they couldn't see it. They they sort of distance themselves. They didn't know me. I was like, who is this? Weirdo, like that was that was the idea. And James was really struggling. And I tried to talk, 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 preach, fix, tell them what to do. And they just got more distant, more distant, more distant. And what I've learned on that process was that there's three seeds that you can go to w- when dealing with other people in addiction or any any mental suffering for that, for that matter. The first one is talking seed, telling them what to do. It doesn't work. You can, might be able to plant the seed with that. Pfft, very unlikely. But it doesn't work and people start to get further and further away because at, your core, at, at its core, they have something that's a coping mechanism for their pain. So you're literally trying to pull their armor off. That's what you're doing. So they're going to say, no way, get away from me. I'm keeping this armor. It protects me. So the talk and see it really doesn't work. And that's what most people tend to do. They try to fix other people by telling them what to do. And they don't even know what the problem is, which is which is interesting. And i I've gone through that process and I was still doing it. But the second seed is the listening seed. And you can't make someone listen. So it's passive, which is can be challenging for people. But if you can go to them and say, look, if you want to talk, I don't know what's going on, but I'll be here to listen. And if they do talk, Listen to understand. Don't try to be fixing the problem in a backhanded way. Fully be there with your presence, your awareness and listen so they feel seen and heard. And if they feel that, they will come back again and again and again. And just be there as the conduit for them to open up and let the change happen itself. Very, very difficult to do. The skill of listening is really, really challenging. But the towards seed is the action sid. And the action said is looking after yourself. Get your own house in order. And it was only when I personally got my own house in order, I stopped preaching. I'd really worked at myself. I'd harnessed the ability to listen if somebody wanted to tell me something. My brother James had his own rock bomb. He um he actually he, he, he got into so much cocaine debt that he had to bring drugs into the company to set to get rid of his debts. The police were onto him and they raided the gaff. My dad was in the gaff at the time. His name is James as well. The package was on the name. So my dad got arrested, went into the prison for a few days. It, my brother James is such a sensitive soul. It broke him to the core. And when that happened, because I had stopped becoming the preacher and I was someone that could listen and he's seeing Brian is somebody that knows what he's doing. He's been there. He's done that. He came to me. He looked for advice. He went to the Rutland Center. He got treatment. James has a really bad stammer, had a really bad stammer, and all he ever wanted to do was find love and settle down with a girl that he loved and had kids, but he couldn't speak to girls because of a stammer. Since he went to the Rutland Centre four years ago, he got to the bottom of a stammer, he worked on himself, he'd done the right things, he met a girl from Brazil, Helen, her name is, an absolutely beautiful human being, and ironically, on an international international stammering day for men, he set his vows at the top of the hotel on his wedding day to get married to Helen. It was an incredible, incredible moment. And I wouldn't give much James. It's hard to give me a lot of credit for that, but I give all the credit for him. But I definitely served as an example of someone taking action for themselves so he seen it could be done. And I was someone that could listen to him when he wanted to talk to me. And I think the important element of that is, because I get some people, mothers or fathers coming to me saying, how can I tell me? or how can I tell my kids that are struggling with anxiety and I could be looking at them saying well I wouldn't listen to you you're a ball of anxiety giving me advice and anxiety you've got to get your own house in order first that's really clear it's not self-centered it's sensible you've got to look after you and only when you have those foundations then you can help other people my three core values are energy, health, relationships but it's got to be health that helps me with my energy and that helps me in my relationships. It's in that order. So my relationships are the most important thing to me, but the other two will have to be prioritized in order for me to give my all to other people. So yeah, that's the perspective that, that I try to look on life with that.
0: How do you keep your own house in order? What are some of the, your uh, your go-to's? My go-to
1: is I have one go-to, which is two two massive non-negotiables in terms of tools and tactics. The first one is my morning routine. I have a three-minute morning routine. It's called the bag technique. It's breath work. I was going to say breakfast there. It's not breakfast. (laughs) It's breath work, breath work, affirmations, and gratitude. And it's a minute of each. Breath work. I do a thing called a physiological sigh, but I I can play around. As humans, we love novelty, so it's good to play around with different techniques. So I just do a minute of breath work. I do a minute of affirmations. I affirm to myself. Sometimes I say, "I'm I, I, my name is Brian. I'm strong. I can handle anything. I have a couple of different mantras in that as well. And again, language is a vehicle for emotion. So affirmations have power. And if you say it like 10, 15 times and start to embody it, After about five or six, you really start to feel something happening. So minute of breath work, minute of affirmations, and a minute of gratitude. But it's not a gratitude list. I really try to go deep in a visualization story. I visualize the people in my life, the animals in my life, like pets, the kids in my life. And I experience the time I've spent with them, the hugs, the play, the laugh, the memories. Really try to embody those feelings. And I genuinely, every morning after my three-minute morning routine, it's like... I've given myself an injection of positivity. Like they all tap into neuroscience though. So it's just, And it sets your intentions for the day. It makes me feel better. But it sets my intentions for the day. Because I think a core component of the world of life is that life will try to pull you off course. So you feel like staying in bed. You feel like having a bottle of wine. You feel like avoiding that difficult conversation. But if you have values you know what's important my mental health so i'm gonna do i'm gonna act and change how i feel like mood follows action motion drives emotion so the action of a morning routine is an action that changes how i feel so that's non-negotiable every single morning and it's only three minutes so it's super simple super quick but the second one is exercise so it's just and it's such a powerful like Everyone knows exercise is good for you, but when you really dig into the science, into the mechanics and the biochemistry of exercise, it's so much better than most people think. And going forward, I think it's going to be a lot more emphasis put on exercise from metabolic health, cardiovascular health, psychological health, emotional health, and then the interplay between metabolic health and emotional health and psychological health, that mind-body connect. So If I ever feel a little bit down or I feel a little bit, I don't really get down, but if I feel a little bit anxious, overwhelmed or not 100%, I'll go for a run, I'll go to the gym. And I would train about five times a week anyway. I have a rule for next year is to sweat at least once every day. So we'll see how that goes. Nice
0: one. Get a a sauna for your new house there. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) yeah, So rest days. That's that's true. I'll do that. (laughs) Nice one. So you've gone on to become a doctor. Yeah. And... You know, when I came across your Instagram page, even today, I was looking at your, you know, the first line, uh, previous heroin addict turned doctor, even that line in itself was like, wow. However, what are some of the things that you have learned through through this process of studying and becoming the doctor that you feel is not being spoken about enough or there's not enough emphasis on in today's society that many people need to hear?
1: Wow, whether I I learned that through the process of the PhD and the research is is an interesting thing. One thing that really comes to mind is, and it's something that's part of my research, so my PhD research was really focusing on addiction. And a lot of the big study actually got wiped out by COVID. So it sort of forced me to look into another study, which turned out to be really super interesting. So we were looking at emotion-driven pathways to alcohol misuse. And I think that's something that's really important. Again, back to that root cause. Like people think they have a drinking problem or a drug problem. They don't. They have a root cause problem, which is usually emotional, generally always emotional in some way. But it could be negative emotions, but even positive emotions can lead to addictive tendencies as well. But I was really interested in this idea of wanting more. And through Gabor Mate's work, he talks about chasing the hungry ghost or I love that line, like most people are trying to fill a hole in their soul and the hole of their soul could be disconnection. It could be abandonment at an early age. It could be loneliness. It could be lack of self-worth. There's something missing. They're lacking meaning and purpose as a result of that. There's something missing in their lives. And they're trying to fill that missing hole with materialistic pursuits, drugs, substances. Sex, gambling, these external things that do, do not fill the hole in their soul. It just won't. It might give them an initial pleasure, but it doesn't fill the hole. So I wanted to explore that from an academic perspective. And I noticed that when I was in recovery, if anything made me feel good, I'd want more. Give me more. And I found this with many people in recovery as well. I was playing golf about 10 times a week in early recovery when I found out there was no parade and I had no <laughs> friends. I was going go <laughs> playing golf on my own every day because I had nothing to do. I had no job. and um, But I, I, if I felt good, give me more. And even even my my unmet needs of uh like I had an unmet need in terms of I love to learn. So I learned and I learned and I learned. That turned into something really good, but I had to get balance on that as well because I nearly... It got me to relapse in 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 2015. So I was chasing something as well. So I explored this in terms of materialism because that was the only existing psychometric construct for wanting more. And what we found was that there was a link with people with negative emotions, especially if impu- acting impulsively on negative emotions, especially to cope. This susceptibility or mindset in terms of wanting more can lead you down a much darker path. And I think this is something like you could talk about consumerism, materialism, whatever it is, but I see it with everybody. We want more. And I, I think something that I'm really looking into now that I would love to, uh, I'd love to, I wish I'd done more research within it as well, is this idea of comfort. I read a great book recently called The Comfort Crisis. It's a great book. Yeah, Michael Easter. Yeah, it's a great book. Such a good book. And I'm actually going to do a Masogi in the new year. I'm going to do some Class. big challenge in the yes. new year. Yeah. So for anyone listening, the Masogi is like this super tough task that you should nearly fail. So I think I, I got I got a, a rook vest and all. I'm going to cl- pick a mountain, climb You're a well mountain with the I'm Well yeah. invested, yeah. <laughs> um, so that's the plan for the new year. But I think we're struggling. There's so much comfort. Like we're in... Room temperature, our cars, where heat-regulated rooms, everything is comfortable. Like even this idea that as soon as you feel hungry, you eat. That's not how we evolved as humans. Like hunger, we need to lean into that. And you look at the obesity crisis right now; like it's filled and crappy ultra-processed food is there all the time. So it's like, and it taps into that idea of more, 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 more social media, more food, more drugs, more pleasures. And it's leading us down a dodgy path. And I think the comfort crisis kind of taps into that as well. So I think we need a shift where we need to look at discomfort as a way of of learning. Like a good friend of mine, Nilo Murak, who who is a Wim Hof instructor. He just climbed a mountain there in in, in, in in a pair of shorts only over in Poland in the snow. And he, he's dying to share what he learned. And he says it was the most profound experience of his life. So we don't have to do all of these extreme things, but... But lean into discomfort I think mm. that's where our learning happens
0: even the things you're doing which I do as well the intermittent fasting the cold heat yeah. exposure the exercise they're not the training, enjoyable
1: yeah, they're <laughs> not. I got an ice bath uh, I have it for Christmas I'm gonna, uh, yeah, for the new house and um, I do my first ice bath there last couple of months ago it was horrific I'm not good in the cold <laughs> but how good I felt after it was yeah. incredible so uh, I'm going to lean into discomfort 2024 20, every morning start with an ice bath sure
0: Ice bath was a couple of months ago so it didn't become a consistent thing is it? Yeah, <laughs> Not, yeah
1: yeah. I was a once off I hadn't so we're in an
0: apartment so I couldn't get an ice bath yeah, so now yeah. we're moving into the house so I have, have the ice bath coming up Oh man sauna yeah. in, in the house ice bath in the house Yeah, well, you're going to have a whole, whole works the whole there shabang. to keep you uncomfortable and then <laughs> chill out in the couch then yeah and, That's it. and you know the, the funny thing is about discomfort is the more you take on voluntary discomfort the more comfortable your life becomes That's it Neil has a great phrase
1: it's like the the ice bath is like a metaphorical ice bath for life is the challenges you face so when you get stressed out you've harnessed the ability to sit with this comfort so all of a sudden life gets easier and you will enjoy the comforts even more because you appreciate
0: them more you know Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. Brian absolutely love this conversation man it's been uh, incredible to have you on the podcast here and you have a lot of resources you do a lot of speaking events you have Your book as well, which is incredible. And I was looking at some of the reviews that you have on Amazon and you're changing people's lives with every conversation and every word you write. So please let all the listeners of this podcast do them a massive favor and let them know where they can find you, reach out to you, buy your book, potentially join one of your speaking events. So let them know.
1: Cheers, thanks, Gavin. So I think the the go to place to go so is my website. So it's brianpenny dot um, it's it's live. It's live a long time now, but I do have a new uh, version of it now. It's in, it's in the works at the moment. It's it's still live. It's just going to be up, up, upgraded in in the new year. But it's brianpenny.com. and. Speaking events, programs, there's lots of free resources on the website as well. So if you go to online resources and go to online courses, jump in there. And if you use the word resilience, that's a free code to get access to anime courses. So anyone that's struggling out there, there's a in a course on addiction, unlocking the secrets of addiction, recovery, master your self-talk, habit change. So free access using the word resilience there as well, and blogs and stuff like that as well. And then Instagram, Brian Penny78, and then LinkedIn, they're the two channels that the Army go to channels. But uh Brilliant.
0: I will add those links in the show notes below everyone to go check it out this has been this has been incredible and I look forward to uh, part two sometime maybe next year and definitely talk us about your uh, cold and heat exposure yeah, and all, yeah, all that's yeah. going and I know you're again you're always evolving and developing onto new things so I'm very excited for what's to come for you
1: yeah, no, really, really appreciate this, game. This is one of my favourite, if not my favourite podcast of all time. I think I came in, felt super relaxed. I think, uh, yeah, I just absolutely enjoyed it. I think definitely a part two. I feel we, we only touched the surface with some things as well. So that's yeah. definitely on the cards. But well, totally pleasure. Thanks for having me. Brilliant. Thank you, my man. Thank you.